Well, thank you for welcoming me, my family, and thank you for your partnership in the gospel. I just want to share one very brief story before we unpack this text in the Gospel of Mark that highlights gospel partnership in the way that you have sowed into us and we've taken that seed and rescattered it among the nations. And so when your team was here at, at our church in Belmont, Massachusetts last June, uh, we had a members meeting, and your team helped out with that members meeting, just with logistics, and uh, your pastor was in the back. And at, at that meeting, I shared about an upcoming missions trip that we were taking to Montreal among one of the least reached people groups in all of North America, the Quebecois people. These are French Canadians right outside of Montreal. And our church has formed a, a partnership there, and we took our first team of about six people to help with their facility, to do a facelift on their facility last August. Your team heard that, came back to your VBS, which I believe was in July, and as a special project, the kids at your VBS raised $975, and you sent a check to our church in that amount. We then took that check with 1300 of our own dollars and gave $22,100 to La Assemblée Chrétienne so that we could facelift their facility and just provide a donation to them as well among the least reached people group in North America, and they're a five-hour car ride from us. And so thank you for sowing into us and inspiring us to sow into others. That's gospel partnership. That's kingdom-mindedness, and that's what's going on at your church. And so I just thank you for sowing into us. We, we love you. Churches are planted through a plurality of people partnering together. We are a product of partnership, and you're one of our partners. So thank you, friends, and thank you for the chance to, to preach. Uh, I want to just pray and just commit this time to the Lord as we unpack Mark chapters 4 and 5. Lord Jesus, your word is powerful. It challenges us. It comforts us. It convicts us. It equips us. We pray that you would guide us in this truth, that you would empower me to speak faithfully, passionately, accurately, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. In preparation to preach this sermon, I spent some time thinking about the chaotic moments in my life. Times when things seem to be spiraling out of control. Tumult and trial. I thought about the fall of 1999, my freshman year at Bucknell University. I was in a dating relationship that crumbled to pieces, and I was wrecked. It was a grace to me, but I couldn't see it then. Struggling academically, I was a football player, struggling on the field as well. Those things converged and created chaos in my life. Think about the fall of 2010, when my older brother spent a week in the hospital as a result of some very bad decisions that he made. Our family was overwhelmed. We were on a downward spiral. We did not know what to do. Friends, what have been some of the chaotic times in your life when things seemed to be spiraling out of control? You were overwhelmed, and you just simply did not know what to do. Where did you turn to for calm in the midst of chaos? Where did you turn to for peace in the midst of your trial? Well, as we look to Mark chapters 4 and 5, here's what we see. Jesus brings calm in the midst of chaos, leaving people to consider who he is. Jesus 
brings calm in the midst of chaos, leaving people to consider who he is. What I'd like to do is look at two episodes in chapters 4 and 5. Dave read the first. I'll read the second one here in a moment. But these two episodes, they have the same structure, the same progression. So the progression is this. People are in utter chaos. Jesus brings a supernatural calm. And then people are left to consider who this Jesus is. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? So utter chaos, a supernatural calm, and a remaining consideration. Let's take a look at this first episode, Jesus and his disciples on the open See, as nightfall approaches, Jesus decides to take his disciples across the Sea of Galilee. They're on the western side, and they sail five to six miles to the eastern side. And as they do that, we're told in verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. The Sea of Galilee is notorious for its sudden and strong storms because of the topography. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. And then just to the east, it rises rapidly. Mount Hermon's 9,000 feet above sea level. So you have these colliding cold fronts from the, the mountains and the uprising warm fronts from the sea, and they come and they create turbulence. And so these storms are well known, and that's what happens that night on the open sea as they, tr they sail five to six miles. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. This situation is dire. It's going down. The boat is sinking. The disciples are in chaos, aren't they? The situation is urgent for everyone, everyone except Jesus. What's he doing as this boat is taking on water? He's in the back of the boat, curled up on his pillow, sleeping. He was asleep in the stern on a cushion. He is the perfect picture of peace in the midst of chaos, isn't he? The only mention of Jesus sleeping in all the scripture, and it's in the midst of a hurricane. Well, the disciples are desperate and afraid. They wake up Jesus with this accusatory question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Embedded in their question is an accusation. Master, you don't care about us. You're not here for us when we need you most. Do you hear the accusation in their question? Now, they've walked with Jesus for months, perhaps even a year at this point in his public ministry. They've seen his care. They've seen his compassion. He's alleviated fevers. He's caused the lame to walk. He's cleansed lepers. He's been nothing but caring. And yet in the midst of their desperation, they forget his faithfulness and they make an accusation. Do you not care, teachers, that we are perishing? Friends, in the midst of your desperation, you will be prone to forget the faithfulness of God. To get locked in on your trial and to not see and remember God's past actions of faithfulness. You will forget His goodness, His kindness to you. Perhaps you're in the midst of tumult right now. And can I just encourage you as a friend, as a brother, how has God been good to you in the past? 
And how can remembering his past faithfulness inform your perspective on your present difficulty? God is always present. God is always faithful, but always in accordance with his own time. And notice, when the disciples think it's too late, Jesus is right on time. Verse 39, Jesus awoke and he rebuked the winds and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Chaos becomes calm at the command of Jesus. Jesus takes this situation of utter desperation and brings about a supernatural calm at the power of his command. And he turns and challenges his friends. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He is pressing into their unbelief. He says, friends, you've seen me work. You've witnessed my power, my authority, my faithfulness, my compassion. And yet you doubt. He's inviting them to trust in the midst of their trials. You can trust me. You can trust me. You can trust me. Utter chaos. Jesus brings a supernatural calm. And then they're left with the remaining consideration. Notice what they say in verse 41. Who then is this that even the sea obeys him? Here we see the most surprising element in the story. As they consider who this Jesus is, they're filled with great fear. That verse literally reads, they were afraid with great fear. That's a redundancy in fear words. And the redundancy highlights how afraid they were. They're terrified. Friends, here's what's surprising. The disciples are more afraid after Jesus calms the storm than they were in the midst of the storm. Why is that so? Why are they more afraid after he calms the storm? Because they are beginning to realize the identity of the one who is in the boat. God is in the boat. And that changes everything. You see, these are Jewish men who would have understood the Jewish scriptures. Who in the Old Testament scriptures speaks to the wind and the waves? Let me just give you a little sampling. It's all over the place, though. Psalm 67, Psalm 65, verse 7. O God, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Psalm 89, verse 9. O Lord God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 104, verse 7. At your rebuke, O Lord, the waters fled. Psalm 107, verse 29. God made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. That night on the open sea. And they see Jesus. Shh. Suddenly they realize this is no ordinary man in the boat. God is in the boat. And friends, surprises in narratives are what the authors are trying to lock your attention on. So when you're reading through the Gospels and you see a turn of events or a surprise, that's the author's way of underlining or highlighting something's important here. This is surprising. This passage is not so much about Jesus calming the storms of your life, though he is faithful and does that at times. This passage is more to do with who is Jesus. And Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, the one who spoke those waves into existence in the first place. Hush them in that instance. He's the Lord of creation. God 
was in their boat. This passage holds out compelling application for us. Whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, there's application here. Let me speak to Christians first. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, friend, do you realize who you're sailing with? Do you realize on the turbulent seas of life just who is in your boat? More often than not, we tend to rely on self, batten down the hatches, pay water out of the boat, all the while, and who's in the back? God's in the boat. And we've just not cried out to him yet. He's with you and daily invites you to be still and know that he is Lord. Perhaps you're here today and you're just exploring Christianity. What a wonderful thing. We're so glad that you're here. Do you know, friend, how much Jesus cares about you? That night on the open seas, he calms a storm. But as the trajectory of the Gospel of Mark continues, Jesus will bring peace by stepping into a storm. That's the trajectory. Jesus is going to a Roman cross, and as he hangs on that cross, he bears the wrath of God that you and I deserved. He steps into a storm. The crashing waves of God's wrath fall on him and him alone, and he's going to bring peace to us, all who believe by stepping into that storm. He loves you, friend. He bore your debt, your penalty. And he's inviting you to turn and trust in him. In this first episode, Jesus brings this supernatural calm to a situation of utter chaos on the open seas, leaving his disciples just wondering, who is this man? Briefly, we're going to look at the second episode in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Let me read that for us. Mark tells us they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As, a, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. 
And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. These two passages are linked together thematically. In the first, Jesus brings a supernatural calm to a situation of chaos in the open seas, leaving people to consider who he is. And then in the second passage, Jesus brings a supernatural calm to a situation of utter chaos in a man's life, leaving him and his neighbors to consider who is this man. Jesus goes across to the other side. This is Gentile, non-Jewish territory. The Gerasenes, or Gergisa. It's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And immediately there's a man who meets him. This man is in absolute chaos. He is possessed by a plurality of demons. A legion, as we'll find out. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched them apart. Just this picture of supernatural strength and destruction. He's inhabited by Satan's minions, his demons. This man is death incarnate, death animated. And friends, this is what Satan and his minions are out to do. They seek to kill, thwart, and destroy the good creation of God. And so as they inhabit this man, what is he doing? He's seeking to pierce himself, cut himself with rocks. That's Satan's attack. Mark tells us in verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell face down before him. And so what you see here is a combination of those evil spirits recognizing the authority of Jesus. Who in the scriptures understands who Jesus is as he's ministering? The demons. Truly you are the Son of God. See, they know who he is. They have good theology, but they just don't practice it. They don't submit to it. And then this man's just genuine desire to be freed from this spiritual oppression. We see that. What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, do not torment me. Jesus had been saying, come out of him, come out of him, come out of him. Jesus then asked the Spirit, what is your name? And the Spirit replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was a unit of 6,000 Roman soldiers. There are thousands of demons in this man. And we see that the 2,000 pigs that will be drowned. This man is marked by utter chaos, but a supernatural calm is coming. The demons beg Jesus not to send them out, disembodied, but to send them into this nearby herd of pigs. And strangely, Jesus grants their request. And Mark writes in verse 13, So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea where they were drowned. Friends, this is a dreadful picture of destruction. Just picture it. 2,000 Bloated pigs bobbing in the bay. It's awful. Why would Jesus allow this? Well, we're not sure. Mark doesn't comment on it any further. But two possible explanations. First, this prefigures the ultimate destination of Satan and his, his evil ones. I know you're working through Revelation right now. Revelation 20, verse 10. They will be cast into the lake of fire. That's the ultimate destination of Satan and his team. They will be cast 
to destruction in the lake of fire. So some would say that this is prefiguring the destructive end of Satan and his servants. But looking at the rest of the passage, there's another explanation for the plight of the pigs. What happens with the pigs serves to reveal the hearts of these people in the country, what they valued. The decimation of their livestock, the very livelihood, revealed what the people trusted in. We'll talk about that just in a moment. So the herdsmen flee the scene and they broadcast among their countrymen what had happened. And in response, people flock back. They come back, and what do they see? Verse 15, they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Jesus takes a man living in utter chaos, and he brings about a supernatural calm at his command. Chaos to calm at the command of Jesus. Jesus carries out a miraculous reversal in this man's life. Friends, this is the power of Jesus Christ. Chaos to calm, desperation to hope, death to life. This is what Jesus Christ provides all who would look to him, repent of their sin, and trust in him. He's, he's a re reverser. He takes chaos and he makes it calm. He takes death and he makes it spiritual life. For all who will trust in him today, what chaos, what restoration is needed in your life? Would you look to Jesus? Would you turn to him, repent of your sin? He can bring a supernatural calm into that. What remaining consideration do we see in this passage? Notice how the people respond. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. He's a picture of peace. And they were afraid. Do you remember how the disciples responded when Jesus hushed the storm? They were afraid. These people are afraid at the power display of the Lord of heaven and earth. They're afraid. These passages are linked together. Though the disciples were afraid, they remained with Jesus. These countrymen are afraid. What do they do? Different response. Jesus, leave us. Get away from us. Two different responses to the power of Jesus. Two different responses today to the, to the work and the power of Jesus. Will we welcome him or will we reject him? Those who had seen it described to the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from that region. Isn't that strange? This man's life has been transformed. They knew how bad his situation was because they're the ones who shackled him and tried to keep him from hurting himself. Yet after this transformation takes place, they beg him to leave. Wouldn't you want him to stay? What's going on here? They care more about their livelihood than they do life transformation. They care more about their livelihood than they do life transformation. This is an illustration of what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. These are Gentiles. So they could eat pork. They herded pigs, 2,000 of them, evidently. This was a big part of their economy, and it's decimated, and they want Jesus to leave. They care more about their livelihood than they do about life's transformation. Friends, beware the prospect of material loss. It can deter the promise of spiritual gain. 
throughout the centuries. Beware the prospect of material loss if you follow Jesus, because it will deter you from holding on to his promise of spiritual gain. So this man's countrymen begged Jesus to leave. But notice what the man, the man's also begging, but he begs him to remain with Jesus. As Jesus was getting into the boat, you see this man whose life has been transformed. Jesus, can we go? Can I go with you? And Jesus says, no, you're staying here. Why did Jesus not permit him to go? Because this man was his witness on the Decapolis. Why did Jesus go across to the other side to proclaim the gospel? He's promptly rejected, but he does not leave himself without a witness. He does not leave himself without a witness. He leaves that man there to testify to the gospel, to the mercy of Jesus Christ. Isn't it good news that Jesus sends another messenger? I'm so grateful that after I rejected my friend Justin in 1996, as a junior in high school, he shared the gospel with me. I wouldn't hear it. Three years later, I heard it from my sister. I'm so glad that he'll send multiple messengers, multiple messengers. Maybe you're not a Christian. I want you to encourage you. Who has God placed in your life who's sharing the gospel with you? Multiple messengers, people to pray for you, people to share with you. They may be irritating to you right now, but friends, it's an expression of God's love. He does not leave himself without a witness. He will send multiple messengers so that you can hear and respond in faith. If you are a Christian, do you realize you have been commissioned with a message of mercy? What does Jesus tell this brother? Go and tell what the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. He doesn't say, go get a theological degree, though that is important. He says, you just go and tell what the Lord has done for you. Share your testimony. Your testimony is powerful, and God can use that to bring another person into his fold. It's a message of mercy. This man's situation was abysmal. He's crying out on the mountain. He's being pierced with his rocks, skin, blood is flowing. He's living among the tombs, among the dead. It's awful. Yet, as the story continues, where is Jesus headed? He's going to step into that same chaos, isn't he? He's going to hang on a Roman cross, on a mountain, crying out in anguish, and his skin will be pierced, and he will be buried in a tomb. He's going to experience the same chaos, but come out on the other side victorious. He walks into our chaos, and he conquers, and then he commissions us to bear witness to him. This is the message of mercy. And friends, if you're a follower of him, you are his messenger. As we close, I want to tell you a story very briefly of a man in our congregation named Dave Hallett. I met Dave two years ago this month. Our church every Tuesday, every Thursday serves free Starbucks coffee at the train station. Our, our town is a commuter town. It's a 10 minute ride, train ride into Boston. So thousands of people take the train into their work. And we serve coffee, we share the gospel, we invite people to church. It's a wonderful way to serve, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so I meet this guy, he's curious, he kind of walks by the first time, first week, and then he comes by and he says, hey, what are you guys doing this for? I explain that we're, we're a part of a church and we want to serve our neighbors. We serve because Jesus has first served us. He comes by the next week, he said, I'll come to your church. He comes to our church, I find out that this, this, this man was in the midst of chaos. He was separated for six months from his wife as a result of some very bad decisions that he made. And he's in the midst of a renewal. And he begins to come, and we begin to read the very gospel of Mark that I'm preaching right now. 
and God is changing his life. A few months later, he's baptized upon a profession of faith. We have a picture up here that I'd like to show you. It'll come up. I'll continue the story. Here we go. So this is Dave's baptism. And you'll notice that that's a cattle trough. In Boston, we baptize people in cattle troughs because we don't have our own space. So we set it up in the back, and that's, that's outside. So that's uh, September a year ago. His wife's in the back taking a picture with her iPhone. She's not yet a Christian. And Dave witnesses to her, loves her, is caring for her, that she might be a Christian. But three weeks ago, Dave had an opportunity to go to a friend named Eddie. It's a family friend. Eddie has terminal cancer. And the family invited Dave over to just share his story and, and read the Bible. These are not Christians. Eddie's not a Christian. So Dave goes, he opens the Gospel of John, and he shares about eternal life. In my father's house are many rooms. Eddie, if you would just repent and believe, you can have a room. It's secure. We'll make your reservations today. Friends, Eddie responded to the Gospel, came to believe, prayed with Dave, and last week, Eddie died. So here's Dave, a man in chaos, Jesus brings a supernatural calm into his life and commissions him as his messenger, and he's telling the Lord how much he's done, sharing the message of mercy. Isn't that good news? Jesus brings a supernatural calm into our chaos, and then he commissions us to share a message of mercy to those in need. May we do that faithfully, brothers and sisters. Would you pray for me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You're the agent in creation, the one who spoke those waves and winds into existence in the first place and hushed them at, their, at your command. We thank you for your power, for your identity, and for your invitation for us to trust in you as Lord and Savior and for commissioning us with a message to deliver to people in need, all of us, have friends, have people in our path that you've strategically placed there. Would you give us courage? Would you give us faith to humbly share? And Father, I pray for some who are, who are curious, who are exploring you. Or by your spirit, would you just empower them to move across that threshold of faith, that they would receive your forgiveness and spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.